Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. In the spring, the center hosted a series of online constitutional classes for students, teachers, and learners of all ages. As we gear up for more classes starting on August 31st, this week we're sharing one of our favorites from spring 2020. On today's episode, NCC President Jeffrey Rosen reviews 15 of the most important Supreme Court cases. This class was prepped for high schoolers taking AP government, but it's helpful for anyone who wants to learn more about the Supreme Court and constitutional law. Jeff was joined by the center's chief learning officer, Curry Sautner, and by Stephanie Sanford from the College Board. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Curry. It's great to see you as always. And welcome, Stephanie. We're so thrilled to have you join the Constitution Center for our live constitutional classes and so thrilled to be able to review the Supreme Court cases for the upcoming AP exam. Welcome. Terrific. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's always great to be here, even virtually. Always wonderful to interact on these topics with you. Um, I, uh, I'm from the I'm here from the College Board, and I've over the last uh, seven years, some of the most exciting work I've been able to do has been to to interact with with you all and our work here on uh, the American founding documents and the Constitution Center. So, um, really excited to uh, excited to be here and join you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, we've got a lightning round of cases to go through. It's so exciting, uh, friends who are joining us, to have the chance to review the most landmark, totemic, important Supreme Court cases that the court has ever decided in American history. And uh, we're excited to share them with you. I'm going to summarize the cases briefly, and Stephanie's going to ask me some questions about them. I may ask her some questions, too. We have a lot to go through, but I want to just begin with this plea, and I'm a law professor, so I always have to give homework, and that is this. Read the decisions themselves. After this class is over, go back and actually read the decisions. I know they're long. You don't have to read every word. There's some technical language in them, and you're not lawyers, but you have the ability, if you take the time to read the majority opinions and also the concurring opinions and the dissents, Remember, the concurring opinions are people who agree with the majority, but for different reasons, and the dissent disagrees with the majority. If you read all of that quickly, you'll get a better sense of the cases than Stephanie or I could possibly give you on this uh, conversation. The conversation will be great, and we're looking forward. Stephanie, shall we jump right in? Let's go. Okay. So the first case is McCullough against Maryland. Friends, it's the most important case about the scope of congressional power ever decided by the Supreme Court. And it was decided in 1819. And the question is, is the National Bank constitutional? There's a huge political controversy about whether or not uh, uh, Congress has the authority to charter a national bank. And when Congress did charter the bank in 1816, the state of Maryland passed a law imposing taxes on the bank. It wanted to put the bank out of business. And a Baltimore bank cashier, whose name was James McCulloch, refused to pay the taxes. Maryland tried to force him. And Maryland challenged Congress authority to establish the bank in the first place. The landmark opinion was written by Chief Justice John Marshall. And the Supreme Court held, first of all, that the power to tax is the power to destroy. If Maryland can impose this tax, then it can put the bank out of business. And then, very significantly, Marshall said that the necessary and proper clause of Article I of the Constitution gave Congress's power that weren't explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. And therefore, Congress could take actions, like establishing a bank that were appropriate and legitimate in service of its 
enumerated powers. So remember the difference between enumerated powers in Article One, such as Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce or to create a post office, and then powers that are implied but unenumerated. In this case, the Chief Justice said the power to charter a bank was appropriate and uh, legitimate. It was related to the enumerated power to regulate interstate commerce because a bank could affect interstate commerce and therefore um, the bank was constitutional. Uh, Marshall also stressed that a bunch of Congresses had considered the constitutionality of, of the bank before and had decided to charter it. And he said that the court should defer to the constitutional judgment of the legislative branch and not second guess that on its own. Okay, Stephanie, what do you think of all that? Well, I mean, I, I, so I to, it's always fascinating, um, Jeff, to, to hear that, you know, your encyclopedic knowledge of these cases. Um, but but for, for uh, just to take it up for sort of our lay people, right? What's the big idea, right? What's the big idea here? We're talking about, you know, sort of a system of checks and checks and balances, and it has a, an elastic concept in a lot of contexts. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of at a high level? And particularly, because these cases seem, these two cases seem so different. And yet they're illustrating um, a very, they're illustrating the same concept. They really are. Um, the, the big idea is that the necessary and proper clause, which was called the sweeping clause, gives Congress the power to do things that aren't explicitly written down in the text of the Constitution as part of Congress's enumerated powers. So that's the big idea of McCullough and Maryland. And the famous quote that Marshall said is, we must never forget that it is a constitution we are expanding, which meant that it's not like a tax code or some really technical document. It's a broad statement of principles. And then Marshall has this beautiful quote, let the end be legitimate, let it be within the scope of the constitution and all means which are appropriate which are plainly adapted to that end, which are not prohibited, but consistent with the letter and spirit of the Constitution are constitutional. So that's the kind of uh, principle that Marshall is handing down. The end is legitimate, chartering a bank. It's within the scope of the spirit of the Commerce Clause. And therefore, any means that's plainly adapted to that end and not forbidden is OK. But Stephanie, you mentioned you know the, the, the pair of cases that our, our friends need to think about together. And the second case is, is United States against Lopez. That was decided in 1995, uh, two centuries after uh, nearly the McCulloch case. But that was a case that reached the opposite conclusion. As Stephanie said, there for the first time in a long time, really since 1937, the court held that there are limits to Congress's power to regulate interested commerce, that basically it's not a blank check. So don't read McCulloch to say anything goes. There are some limits to Congress's power. And in that case, um, Congress passed a law called the Gun-Free Schools Act of 1990, which forbade individuals from taking guns next to schools. Sounds like a sensible thing. Well, the Supreme Court um, disagreed that it was within Congress's Congress power because a guy called uh, Alf Alfonso Lopez, who was arrested for carrying a concealed gun in high school, challenged his conviction. He said that the law exceeded Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, and the Supreme Court agreed with him. It was a five to four decision, and the court said carrying a gun into schools is not an economic activity, and therefore it doesn't qualify as the kind of activity that Congress has the authority to regulate under the Commerce Clause. So what's the big idea there? There's some limits to Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. Um, if Congress is trying to regulate a non-economic activity and that activity doesn't substantially affect interstate commerce in some way, then Congress doesn't have the power 
and that seemed to uh, lay out a framework for limits on Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. There have not been all that many cases since 1995 where the court has held that Congress has exceeded that interstate power. Great. What do you we think, need Curry, to move on to our next? Curry, how, how, how are we doing? I think you guys are doing pretty good. You're, you're everybody, doing round, so. everybody said lightning round, but definitely talk slower just because they're all taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> we have all these cases. But wait. Remember, you can always go back and read them. <laughs> I know. And that's what I said. Don't worry. I'll send you all the YouTube channel. But wait, because it gets even better, guys. You think that was fast? Now they get to go through a few more. So the next grouping, you know, really looks at the Bill of Rights and balancing the order, um, balancing order of the government for all and individual liberty. So here's a list of the court cases. And again, guys, we'll send you all these and everything and some notes from College Board as well. Um, but Stephanie, I wanted to ask you, what, what are the, when you put this into the framework, when your AP put it into the framework, what is the big idea that you wanted them to know? And then Jeff can do like a, the lightning round through all of the cases. <laughs> No, I think you did just, I mean, the, the big idea around sort of, um, you know, the governmental, this next set, sort of the governmental laws and policies, sort of balancing order, um, balancing order and liberty, and how these things really change over time. Got it. Perfect. Okay, now, Jeff, she turned you loose. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I won't be turned too loose. So why don't we group them into a couple pairings, because that's a little easier to digest. And we'll start with the two uh, religion cases, England, Vitale, and Wisconsin and Yoder. Friends, you know, Curry and I are teaching at 1 p.m. on every Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday these cases. And two weeks ago, we did the religion cases, and we had a great deep dive into them. And we started with Engel versus Vitale, which is decided in 1962. The big idea here is the government cannot draft a prayer for you students to recite in public school. Back in 1962, the New York State Board of Regents authorized public schools to recite a short voluntary prayer at the beginning of the school day, and this was the prayer. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Uh, that was the prayer. It was non-sectarian. What does that mean? Sectarian means favoring a particular sect or aspect of religion. It wasn't, it didn't call out Jesus Christ or the prophet Muhammad or the God of the Old Testament, it said Almighty God, but that wasn't enough to save its constitutionality in the eyes of the Supreme Court, because the court in a six to one decision struck down the prayer under the establishment clause of the First Amendment, which says that Congress shall make no law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the court said that state officials can't compose official state prayers and require that they be recited in public schools, even if the prayer is denominationally neutral, and students can opt out of reciting the prayer. And Justice Hugo Black quoted uh, the Virginia Declaration of uh, Religious Freedom written by Thomas Jefferson and talked about the coercive pressures that you students might feel to pray, even if you're not formally forced to do so. And then in a bunch of subsequent decisions, the court extended that important holding. And in cases like Lee versus Weissman, the court said that even uh, prayer at a high school graduation led by a student could be coercive and uh, is not okay. And more recently, prayers at football games have been struck down in the Santa Fe School District and Doe case. So context is important and it, it's different to have a prayer in at the beginning of a legislative session like Congress, which does begin with a prayer or a town council, that's the town of Greece case. But in schools, the court has held 
there's just a special, there's a lot of peer pressure to do what everyone else is doing. And even if the prayer is non-denominational, the school can't compose it and request that you pray in school. So that's Engel versus Vitale, and that has to do with the establishment clause. Uh, then I'll put on the table the second case, uh, Wisconsin versus Yoder. Uh, that's 1972, and that has to do with the free exercise clause. Remember those two parts of the First Amendment? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Yoder involves members of the Amish faith who challenge a law requiring all kids, uh, students, to attend public schools until the age of 16. The Amish say that's contrary to their religious beliefs, which forbid parents from sending children to school after the eighth grade. And the unanimous Supreme Court agrees with the Amish parents and says that an individual's right to free exercise of religion outweighs the state's interest in requiring the children to continue public school beyond the eighth grade. Remember, Stephanie talked about that balancing of the uh, rights of the individual against the interests of the state. Here, the court says that the high school curriculum is in sharp conflict with Amish values, and the court requires the Wisconsin to grant the Amish families what's called a religious exemption from the Wisconsin law. What's an exemption? It means that the Amish parents are exempt from having to obey a general law that requires generally parents to send their students to school until the age of 16 because of their religious beliefs. Now, this question of under what circumstances religious minorities are entitled to exemptions from generally applicable laws is the most controversial question in religious freedom jurisprudence today. And some of you may have heard that case about the baker who didn't want to bake a cake uh, for a gay couple that was getting married because he didn't approve of, uh, of, of gay marriage. And the Supreme Court didn't squarely decide it on free exercise grounds. But in general, this court has been reluctant to grant religious exemptions from generally applicable laws. That comes from a case from 1990 called Smith, the Smith case, which said that um, Native Americans who wanted to use peyote for sacramental purposes didn't get an exemption from general laws that prohibited drug use, despite the fact that their religion required it, because the law prohibited all drug use, not just that for sacramental purposes. So what? let's review. What's the big ideas here? The Establishment Clause big idea is, the, is that the state and your teachers, if you're in public school, cannot compose official prayers or ask or even request voluntarily that you pray in school or on school property, because that's coercive. And the big free exercise idea is that under some circumstances, religious minorities can get exemptions from generally applicable laws when they severely burden their religious beliefs. Whew. Okay, Stephanie, over to you. What do you no, think about I was going to say that, that, that that's a lot. So, so <laughs> yes, just in, in a, in a simple, that, that's that's really a lot. But this sense of the tension between the state and the individual, and so as you know, as young people are thinking about this as budding young citizens, is there a sort of a, is is there a rule of thumb to think about when you know when how how should they approach balancing you know their their rights you know their rights and individual rights and liberties with. Um, with those of others. I mean, as, as we're, we're grappling right now in sort of these real world examples, um, what's, what's, a, what's, a, what's a rule of thumb for them? 
You know, I wish there were a rule of thumb, but the, the truth is that the justices on the Supreme Court today are disagreeing about where to strike that mm -hmm. balance. And friends, we should not shy away from disagreement among the justices. It's just important to read the majority opinions and the dissents, and you make up your own minds who you're more persuaded by. So there's a case that the Supreme Court is deciding right this term about whether a religious individual should get an exemption from the part of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that requires the provision of contraception coverage. And this religious individual says, I don't believe in contraception. I think it violates God's law and I don't want to have to pay for it. In a previous case, the Hobby Lobby case, the court did grant a religious exemption for a religiously motivated corporation. Five justices joined that opinion. There was a vigorous dissent by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the four liberals who said, hey, if we create exemptions in this circumstance, this is going to allow any religiously motivated corporation to seek exemptions from laws prohibiting discrimination against gays and lesbians, even laws forbidding racial discrimination. She said it would really open the floodgates. So where to strike the balance? Stephanie asked just the right question, and you all should think about where you want to strike it yourself. Read the majority and the dissent and recognize that the justices are striking that balance in different ways. All right, we're back. What's we're back. next? We got some First Amendment cases. We got Tinker. Yeah, so we and got, we got Tinker, New York, and Shank. And everybody, you know, <laughs> wants to also ask um, Stephanie. Um, why Shank? Like, why that case? We love it, and so we get it. Uh, but it must be so hard for the College Board to pick these cases. So, kind of a idea of why those cases, and then Jeff, the real quick rundown of those three cases. I know they're so different, but they're so important right now. No, I, I think. I mean, we have um, we have a committee of um, of of leading of leading scholars and high school teachers, and they look to to these these cases to to be able to animate exactly the kind of discussion that you're hearing here. To, to those that are that are integral to understanding these very tensions and trade-offs, um, and and it's as a part of um, preparation to be um, you know to be a successful citizen in these complicated times. Makes sense. Okay, Jeff, I'm run down quick. <laughs> okay, you know, quick, but uh, and I know I'm talking fast, Francis. Part, partly it's because I'm so excited to be able to share these cases with you, but we're now about to talk about the core principles of free speech in America. What an amazing opportunity, this trio of cases, Tinker, New York Times, and Schenck. Um, I'm going to begin and I'm going to go in reverse order because I think it'll help set things up better. You asked why Schenck? Because after all, it was a case uh, that held against the person seeking uh, an exemption from this law, the Espionage Act of 1917, which basically made it a crime to advocate anything that might possibly down the line lead to resistance of the draft in World War One, And Mr. Schenck is convicted under this law during World War One. A lot of people are charged with mailing printed circulars. It's the equivalent of the tweets of their day, but then they mailed, sent them in the mail designed to obstruct the draft in violation of the Espionage Act. Basically, the Espionage Act made it illegal to send out information that might interfere with the operations of the armed forces. And these pamphlets said, hey, don't enlist in World War I. This is the tool of capitalists. Lots of people were convicted 
of making similar speech. In fact, Eugene V. Debs, the socialist candidate for president in 1920, basically the Bernie Sanders of his day, was convicted and sent to jail of making a similar speech like the one that Mr. Schenck uh, sent a, out a pamphlet about. And Debs ran for president in 1920 from a jail cell because the Supreme Court upheld his conviction. Can you imagine today the Supreme Court if Bernie Sanders said, hey, don't uh, support the uh, uh, president of the United States, he's in the pocket of corporations or, or don't enlist in the Iraq war. It's the war of corporations, him going to jail for that. Of course you couldn't, but that's because of the uh, decisions that stemmed from Shank and the kernel of the principle that would lead to the overturning of convictions for that sort of speech comes from Shank. So Shank was um, uh, convicted under a test that was called the bad tendency test. Essentially in those days, any speech that might have a bad tendency to encourage lawbreaking in the future was considered okay to criminalize. But uh, in the Shank case, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes came up with a more rigorous test. He said it was called the clear and present danger test. That's the big idea. And many of you have heard those words, clear and present danger. And under that test, the court has to ask this question. Were the words used, he said, in such circumstance and are of such nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. And then Holmes goes on to say it's a question of proximity and degree. And then he came up with a really famous line that I know all of you have heard. He said the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. Why can't you shout fire in a crowded theater? Because it's very foreseeable that that would cause a panic and could lead to people's lives being hurt. And therefore, um, there's a clear and present danger when you shout fire in a crowded theater that there's gonna be a riot. And since Congress or the states have the right to prevent the harms that lead from riots, that sort of speech can be prohibited. But it all comes down, Holmes said, to a question of proximity and degree. Proximity means how likely is it that the speech is going to have a bad effect soon? In other words, I might say now, uh, go resist the draft. You might be persuaded by that, but there's no draft right now. The chance that you would resist the draft anytime soon is very low. And in any event, it's not a crime to resist the draft. So my speech couldn't be banned. By contrast, if I said, turn off the Zoom now, I'm going to not say anything more and I'm tired of teaching this class, which I won't because I'm really uh, enjoying teaching this class, then you might well turn off your Zoom. And if that kind of speech were criminal, then it could be forbidden. So the court refined this clear and present danger test in a subsequent case called the Brandenburg case in 1969. And here's the test it came up with. And I do want you to, if even you don't have to take notes because you can find Brandenburg later, but this is the central test that defines free speech in America today. It's the crowning jewel of our free speech protections. It makes us the most free speech protective country in the world. And the question is, is the speech directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action? And is it likely to incite or produce such action? So that sounds a little legalistic. Let me say it even more crisply. In order to be banned in America, speech has to be intended to and likely to cause imminent lawless action. Intended to and likely to cause imminent lawless action. It can't just be that I say something and you by accident overreact and do something violent. 
It's not my intent, so I have to intend to cause the lawless action. It has to be likely to cause the lawless action, not just perceived as hyperbole or political speech. And um, uh, the lawless action also has to be serious. It couldn't just be jaywalking or something like that. Something more like a riot has to be at hand. And in fact, in Brandenburg, amazingly, the speech that the court protected was a guy standing up in a Ku Klux Klan uniform at a Ku Klux Klan rally and making a racist speech saying that unless things change in America, it's the middle of the civil rights era, then white people are going to have to take revengeance. A very hateful, disturbing speech. But nevertheless, the court said the speech was not intended to cause imminent lawless action, and it wasn't likely to. It was just a bunch of vile hate speech at a Ku Klux Klan rally, and therefore that speech is protected. So now you see how very profound and rigorous the protection for speech, including the speech we hate, as Justice Holmes called it, was. And all of that comes from the Schenck case, from the clear and present danger test. And that's why Stephanie and her colleagues were wise to put that Schenck case on the list. So if you'll uh, if you're if you're still listening and you, you can uh, let me keep going I'm gonna now move to New York Times versus Sullivan so that is 1964 and the New York Times prints an ad in the middle of the civil right civil rights era which basically criticizes Martin Luther King uh, and the steps that an Alabama police officer takes to suppress a civil rights uh, rally. And there's some minor factual inaccuracies criticizing the commissioner of public safety in Alabama in this ad. And the commissioner says, because your ad was inaccurate, it was fake news. I'm going to sue you for libel, which means the publication of false information. And a jury gives him $500,000 in damages. And um, this is a real threat to the New York Times, because if it has to pay $500,000 every time it prints an ad that has minor inaccuracies, it might go out of business. So it goes up to the Supreme Court and in a unanimous, totemic, incredibly important decision, the Supreme Court says that you can't uh, be held liable for publishing falsehoods inadvertently in America. In order to survive a First Amendment challenge to win a defamation or libel suit, a public official has to show the publisher, that's the New York Times, knew the statement was inaccurate or false or was reckless in deciding to publish it without further investigation. And the court called this the actual malice standard. So what's the actual malice standard again? Uh, again, you have to prove that the statement was made with actual malice, that is with knowledge that it was false, or reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. So as long as the New York Times is not, doesn't know the statement is false, which it didn't, it was just running the ad, or uh, publishes it without making even minor efforts to find out whether it was uh, true or false, which it didn't because it has uh, fact checkers, then it cannot be held liable. And this is an incredibly important decision because it overturns the idea that public officials can sue other people for what the founders of the Constitution called seditious libel. At the time of the revolution, some of the most important free speech cases in history involved critics of King George who were sent in jail for criticizing him. And under the British law of seditious libel, the fact that the statement was false was no defense. Uh, or rather, the, the fact that the statement was uh, uh, 
true was no defense. In fact, the greater the truth, the worse the offense. You, you could say the king, the king was a tyrant. If he was a tyrant, you were still liable for seditious libel because you weren't allowed to criticize the king. So in repudiating the idea that public officials like the king or a sheriff in Alabama can be criticized, even with statements that turn out to be false, the court created huge amounts of breathing room uh, on the principle, and this is a really inspiring uh, speech uh, or, or statement, the court said that we have to understand free speech against the background of a profound national commitment to the principle that debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open. Those are beautiful phrases, uninhibited, robust, and wide open, and that may well include vehement, caustic, and sometimes unpleasantly sharp attacks on government and public officials. What a beautiful statement of what it means to be an American. You are allowed to engage in vehement, caustic, and even unpleasantly sharp attacks on government and public officials, and any publisher can publish your attacks unless they are uh, knowingly false or made with reckless disregard of whether they're false or not. Okay, that's an awful lot, and I am going to pause to give you a breather and to see what your questions are in those cases before we turn to schools and talk about the Tinker case. So questions for anybody real quick around those court cases you just flew through really quickly, and then we'll get to Tinker. You put your Q&A, your questions go in the Q&A box, just to let everybody know. Wonderful. Devin says, I thought uh, New York Times versus U.S. had to do with the Pentagon Papers case, and that's exactly right. And this is called the New York Times versus Sullivan case. It's confusing because they both involve the New York Times, but this was New York Times versus Sullivan versus, rather than New York Times versus U.S., two of them. And the New York Times versus uh, U.S. case, as you say, Devin, involved prior restraints. And that was the question of whether the government could stop the printing presses. In those days, you actually had printing presses that could be stopped uh, before the New York Times could publish the Pentagon Papers criticizing the government's conduct in the Vietnam War and in refusing to allow prior restraints, that is stopping the presses before the article was published, the Supreme Court established a hugely important principle that uh, prior restraints are generally inconsistent with the First Amendment. Good call on that uh, in those two cases. Okay, so, so Tinker now moves, we have this tremendous jurisprudence of robust protection for speech. Um, Brandenburg channeling Shanks say speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. New York and Sullivan says even false statements are protected by the First Amendment unless they're made with knowledge that they're false or reckless disregard of whether they're false or not. That is actual malice. But what about schools? You may well be asking. You're learning at home right now, but many of you speak in school or you may be speaking on the internet with uh, speaks or uh, speech or blog posts or chat that ends up being read in school or published in school. What are your rights? Well, the Tinker case from 1969 uh, sets out a framework for evaluating what your rights are. And that involved a group of high school students who wore black armbands to school to protest the Vietnam War. And the, school, the students are disciplined by the schools for wearing armbands. And they sued and they said their armbands are a form of symbolic protest, symbolic speech that should be protected under the First Amendment. In a seven to two decision, the court held that the armbands did represent expression protected under the First Amendment. And the court said that students retained their First Amendment rights while they were at school, as long as their speech didn't materially or substantially interfere with the school's operation. And here there was no actual interference. There was only a fear of potential disruption. And therefore, those students were allowed to 
wear their black armbands to school. And there was a very inspiring line in the Tinker case. It can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. So your First Amendment rights do not stop at the schoolhouse gate. You can take them into school. And generally, you can express yourself either through words or symbols, symbolic protest, as long as your conduct or speech or expression doesn't substantially interfere with the school's operation, materially or substantially interfere. Now, that was 1969. Things are a lot more complicated now. And the question about what happens if you post something on a Facebook account criticizing your principal uh, in a way that uh, the school wants to ban, can they do it or not? Lower courts are kind of disagreeing about these questions, saying if you publish something on Facebook, it's pretty foreseeable that someone can read it in school. And if it's really outrageous and likely materially to interfere with the school, then it can be banned. There was a Supreme Court case recently where a student, as a joke, at a parade published, uh, had a huge banner that said, bong hits for Jesus. And he said, I'm just kidding. It was like a crazy thing. I thought it'd be funny to say it. But he was disciplined for supposedly promoting drug use under a school anti-drug policy. And the Supreme Court upheld the disciplining of that student on the grounds that someone might view it as an endorsement of drug use and endorsing drug use could materially interfere uh, with school discipline. The dissenter said, this is ridiculous. He was just joking. He didn't anticipate any disruption. The case was wrong. Read the majority opinion, read the dissent, make up your own mind. But the takeaway, the bottom line is that although you do have some First Amendment rights, your rights don't stop at the schoolhouse gate. They're not as robust, uninhibited and wide open to use those beautiful New York Times and Sullivan phrases as they were if uh, you were outside school and when you are adults. All right, Stephanie, what do you think? Uh, I mean, obviously, I, I think anytime we, we get to these sort of school-based ones, they're of most interest, uh, I think, to, to our to our students. Um, but that sense, uh, before we move on sort of to the next section, um, is it your sense that these um, the, that some of these definitions about disruption are changing in the current environment? And, I, and if, if you're looking ahead? Yes, I, I really think so. Because, of course, uh, all of us, uh, students, parents, and, and uh, teachers, are concerned about bullying online and the fact that people who read really disruptive attacks on them may uh, have very serious psychological harm. Uh, there was one very painful and difficult case of a young woman who's being so bullied that she committed suicide and she tried to sue the kids who posted this stuff about her basically for um, for liability in her, in her suicide. And courts rejected that claim. They said it wasn't foreseeable that, that she would commit that tragic act. But other lower courts are definitely being more sympathetic to the idea that really bullying or harassing speech might cause substantial interference at school, even though the same speech would be protected if it were outside of school and if it weren't online. So judges are very much trying to figure out the right balance, as Stephanie put it, just as the rest of us are. And you as students can also read the decisions and make up your own mind about where you think the balance should be. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Wonderful. Curry, what are our next cases. Okay, section three. So in the AP Gov framework, this section protects the Bill of Rights and really starts to look at the 14th Amendment and incorporation 
through the due process. So we look at these three cases really quickly, Gideon, Roe, and McDonald, um, and they kind of, they span so many ideas and concepts. So with Stephanie and, Vin, uh, Stephanie and Jeff, what are the big ideas you want the students to focus on when they listen to these cases and how they kind of see how they're incorporate, how they're, no pun intended, incorporated together mm -hmm. in this test? No, I, I, uh, no, I think that's the, really this notion of the of the, the sort of in, of incorporation. If you could really explore that, I think that's a you know it, it's it's a it's a complicated term. So so Jeff, as you go through these to to, to really ex, um, sort of ex, uh, explore um, that specifically the definition of that that term and the manifestations in these cases. Okay, so friends, the question of incorporation is technical and complicated. And I'm going to do my level best to explain it as simply and quickly as I can, because you don't really have to grasp all the technicalities. You have to grasp the big idea. So I'll try to explain incorporation. And then we've got three of the greatest hits of all of Supreme Court history involving the right to counsel, the right to reproductive choice, and the right to carry a gun. So you couldn't find three more powerful cases to illustrate this question of incorporation. But the question of incorporation is easy to think about in these terms. What's the very first word? of the Bill of Rights. In fact, I'll just pause to see if anyone wants to chat it. The, very, the, the first, What's the first word of the First Amendment? Because that's the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. Uh, yes, Angel uh, Sobolewski, Congress, thank nice. you so much. Uh, great, the first word is Congress. It says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The original Bill of Rights applied only to Congress. It did not bind the states. The states were free to make laws respecting an establishment of religion. In fact, many of the original states had laws establishing a religion, like Congregationalism in Connecticut or uh, Unitarianism or, or the Anglican Church was established in Virginia. So that's the big thing to remember that until the Civil War, the Bill of Rights only binds Congress. It does not bind the states. Now, each of the states may have their own Bill of Rights that protects free speech or has to do with prohibitions on unreasonable searches and seizures. But the original Bill of Rights does not apply. And in a case called Barron versus Baltimore, Chief Justice Marshall said the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to the states. Then we fought a civil war, the bloodiest, in part to ensure that states were not free to deny African-Americans newly freed people, as well as everyone else, the basic guarantees of the Bill of Rights, like the right to make and enforce contracts, to sue and be sued, and to speak. After the Civil War, the free speech rights of um, African Americans were suppressed. They were forbidden from mailing abolitionist literature in the mail. They were prohibited from making contracts by the infamous Black Codes. And that's one of the central reasons that John Bingham, who was a congressman from Ohio, proposed the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which says, no state shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And Bingham believed that the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States included most of the rights in the original Bill of Rights. So if you want the big idea for incorporation, it is that the 14th Amendment applied to the states most of the rights that the original Bill of Rights applied to Congress, and they were considered privileges or immunities of citizenship. Now, the technical part, which you really don't have to worry about too much, is that the court ended up applying the Bill of Rights against the states, not through the privileges or immunities language that I read, but instead through a different 
clause in the 14th Amendment called the Due Process Clause, which says, nor, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The court held that most of the liberties of the Bill of Rights were liberties protected by the Due Process Clause against state infringement. But that's the technicality you don't have to worry about, except to the degree that for the big three big cases we're about to talk about, Gideon and Roe and McDonald, the, the court is applying these basic liberties through against the states through the due process clause rather than the privilege of immunities clause. Okay, so that's incorporation. Do we have that big idea down before we get into the uh, three cases? Stephanie, you feel like it really yeah, hit it? That's good. Yep. Okay, good. All right, I mean, how can you do justice to Gideon, Roe, and McDonald uh, in just a few minutes? You can't, of course. I, I think I'll just give you the big holdings, but I just want to give you a sense of the constitutional reasoning too, because it's really important, friends, when you're thinking about these cases. I don't want you to ask, do I agree with the result? Don't ask, do I think that accused should have a right to court-assisted counsel as a policy matter, or I think that a woman should have a right to choose or not as a policy matter, or I think I should have a right to bear arms um, in the home as a policy matter, ask what the Constitution allows or forbids. And by separating your political from your constitutional views, you'll be thinking like a judge, and you may find the two diverge, that you believe strongly in the right to choose as a policy matter, as a moral matter, but you think the Constitution doesn't protect it. Or conversely, you believe in the right to life as a policy matter, but you think the Constitution does protect the right to choose. So thinking like a constitutional lawyer is great. So, so Gideon, was such an inspiring case. There's a great book by Anthony Lewis, a journalist called Gideon's Trumpet, uh, invoking the biblical Gideon who blew the trumpet and brought justice to the Israelites. And Gideon was a uh, felon who was tried in Florida uh, and he, was, he wasn't given a, a lawyer and he had to defend himself and he was convicted uh, because Florida law at the time only gave uh, lawyers that were paid to indigent defendants in death penalty cases. And this was a more low level crime. He was suspected of breaking into a pool room. So he hand wrote a petition to the Supreme Court. He said, I've been denied a right. I believe the constitution gives me to a court appointed lawyer, uh, a law clerk who became a brilliant law professor later called John Hart Ely saw the handwritten petition. The court agreed to hear the case. And in this extraordinarily important decision. The Supreme Court agreed with him unanimously and said that the Sixth Amendment right to counsel applies to all criminal defendants charged with a felony in state courts. Um, and as it turned out, he was retried with the aid of a lawyer and he was acquitted. It turned out he'd been framed and he was innocent. So it shows the, I get uh, choked up every time I think about this case because it shows how important these procedural protections are and the constitutional rights matter fact that he finally got a good lawyer, he was able to uh, escape an unjust conviction. So that's the Gideon case. And it says that if you're accused of a felony, then you get a court appointed lawyer, whether you can afford one or not. Roe v. Wade, uh, no question about it. One of the most controversial Supreme Court decisions decided in the past uh, half century or so. Um, as a constant constitutional matter, I just want you to understand the reasoning. The court, what was at stake was a Texas law that banned abortion except in cases where a woman's life is endangered. Jane Roe, that was a pseudonym, not her real name, challenged the law saying it was unconstitutional. In a seven to two decision, wasn't a close decision, the court held that the right of abortion falls within a right to privacy 
that had previously been established in a case called Griswold against Connecticut. Griswold against Connecticut was a case from 1965 that found a right of married couples to use contraception, not in any particular part of the Bill of Rights, because after all, the Bill of Rights doesn't contain the word privacy, but the court said different amendments protect different aspects of privacy. The First Amendment protects mental privacy. The Third Amendment prohibits soldiers from being quartered in your home. The Fourth Amendment protects you against unreasonable searches and seizures. All of these rights, said the court in Griswold, creates penumbras formed by emanations from the particular guarantees that give them rights that create a broader and more free-floating right to privacy. Now, Griswold was controversial. It was criticized for being too abstract. And Justice Blackmun's majority opinion in Roe was also criticized because it wasn't exactly clear about where it was locating the right. Was the right located in this penumbral right to privacy located in Griswold? Justice Blackmun said it was located in the liberty clause of the due process clause. No state shall deprive any person of liberty without due process. But he didn't precisely explain why this right to choose abortion uh, in the first trimester would become less in the second trimester and could be regulated in the third trimester? Um, or was it located somewhere else in the Ninth Amendment, as one of the concurring justices in Roe suggested, Justice Goldberg, said the Ninth Amendment, which says the enumeration of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So Justice Goldberg says the Ninth Amendment says, don't imagine if a right isn't written down, it's not protected. The Ninth Amendment protects unenumerated rights. Back to our first case, McCullough, which says the fact that the right or power is not enumerated to Congress doesn't mean Congress has denied it. Uh, Justice Goldberg says the Ninth Amendment does the same thing for rights as the Necessary and Proper Clause did for powers. Um, bottom line, I know you want to know that here, the court reaffirmed Roe in a 1992 decision called Casey versus Planned Parenthood. It simplified the trimester system and basically said uh, states cannot impose undue burdens on women's right to choose abortion before fetal viability. Fetal viability occurs around 26 weeks. And before that period, women presumptively do have a right to choose abortion. After that, states can restrict uh, reproductive choice. Casey also invoked a woman's right to equality, which is a right that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has championed as a firmer foundation for the right to choose abortion and the right to privacy, suggesting that restrictions on abortion impose burdens on women that are not imposed on men. Women are not able to define their own life paths and to make their own career choices when they're forced to bear unwanted children by the state. So that's the Casey decision. There were vigorous dissents in the Casey case by the late Justice Antonin Scalia and others, and the current Supreme Court um, is divided about the scope of the right to choose. So you should read the majority opinions in Roe and Casey and also the dissents and make up your own mind. But for the AP purposes, you've got to apply the law as the Supreme Court has handed it down, and that the law of the land is that it's as defined in Roe and Casey, that a woman does have a right to choose abortion before fetal viability, and that right is rooted in the liberty clause of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And if it's not controversial enough to have talked about the right to abortion, I'll just end with the, <laughs> the Second Amendment right to bear arms. Go to the next. <laughs> what, the, what the heck? Um, you know, but, but friends, the, the great thing about talking about the Constitution is we can talk about any topic, no matter how controversial. There's nothing partisan about describing the constitutional arguments on both sides of these cases, nor is there anything uh, wrong. In fact, as a teacher, I encourage you to make up your own mind, decide which 
side you think has the best arguments, the majority or the dissent. For the AP purposes, you have to apply the majority opinions, just as uh, the lower courts are bound to apply Supreme Court decisions, whether they agree with them or not. But as students of the Constitution, you can disagree with the majority. And as you try to study these cases for the AP exam, I, believe me, it'll, you'll, you'll learn so much if you just take the time to even skim. You don't have to read them carefully, the majority opinions and the dissent. McDonald versus City of Chicago is a hugely important case. It was decided in 2010. It follows a similar decision called District of Columbia against Heller in 2008, which held that a Washington, D.C. handgun ban enacted by the federal government violated the Second Amendment. That Washington, D.C. ban was the most extreme in the country. No other city aside from uh, Chicago banned handguns in the home. And that's why the McDonald case did for cities, because it came out of Chicago, what the Heller case did for the federal government, because D.C. is a federal enclave, and held that the Second Amendment does not allow cities or states to completely ban handguns in the home. And in doing so, the Heller case incorporated or extended the Second Amendment to apply against the states and held that the right to bear arms was deeply rooted in the nation's history. What's important about Heller and McDonald is that they did not say that the Second Amendment rights are unlimited. They emphasize that Second Amendment rights can be balanced against competing considerations, and in particular, the Heller case recognizing that longstanding gun regulations, including laws banning guns in schools and laws keeping guns away from felons, are constitutional. So do not assume that just because the Supreme Court has recognized a right to possess arms in the home, it is likely to strike down all restrictions on the right to bear arms. And in fact, most of the restrictions that the court has considered since Heller and McDonald, um, including concealed carry laws and the like, it has either upheld or has allowed lower courts to uphold without um, overturning them. So that's the big idea for the Heller case. Heller and McDonald are the first big cases since the 1930s that recognize a substantive Second Amendment right. They apply against the states and the federal government, and they do not allow complete bans on handgun use in the home. But beyond that, the court has signaled that there may be some room for reasonable restrictions on gun use, and the precise scope of that right is being hotly contested right now. Wow, there we go. So I will say that Shay, Shay did ask us if we're still on track to end at two, and we are, we're gonna do it. Uh, so our okay. next set of cases, stay on the 14th Amendment, because if you didn't think an, all amendments are important, but really this is unbelievable that this quality of time for the AP classes is focuses on the 14th, and two really big ones in section four. So in section four, we're looking at the Equal Protection Clause and Brown and Citizens United. Um, Stephanie, big idea that students really want to take away with this, and then Jeff is going to run through them in two minutes, a minute apiece. <laughs> Less than oh, oh, wow, an impressive a minute apiece. So, I mean, how important is these cases in really helping us understand the concept of equality? Um, hugely important, Stephanie. Brown is the most important case recognizing equality in the entire 20th century, some would say in the history of the court. And Brown, friends, as you all know, struck down laws that segregated public schools across the country and held that separate but equal is inherently unequal and overturned the Plessy against Ferguson case, which had allowed separate but equal uh, railway cars and stands for the proposition that uh, there is no room for segregation in American school system because in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. And Citizens United could be viewed as an equality case too, 
the campaign finance law that the court struck down said we can't allow the speech of some of rich people to drown out the speech of others but the majority disagreed and said the idea that we can equalize the speech marketplace is anathema to the First Amendment and that the corporations um, had the same right to speak as individuals do and therefore the First Amendment prohibited restrictions on speech by nonprofit corporations criticizing Hillary Clinton. Uh, Curry, should we try to get through sections yeah, we're gonna, five we, and let's just five and we six? Because I lied. There's going. two more sections. Yep. Yeah, so let's do it. Baker v. Carr and Shaw. So go for it. The big. What do we want to uh, know, Stephanie? For Baker and Shaw, why did we? Big ideas. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sort of the big ideas. You know, sort of gerrymandering, equal representation. Yes, and and the scope of voting rights. Baker v. Carr. Uh, Chief Justice Warren said was the most important case decided in his tenure, along with Reynolds and Sims. It held for the first time that really badly drawn districts that gave some votes more weight than others could be challenged in the court. Baker v. Carr held that they were justiciable, which means it can be challenged in the court. And then Reynolds and Sims established the principle of one man, one vote. You can't have districts that uh, are drawn so funny that some districts have almost no one in them and others have a huge number of people and every vote is not weighted the same. And then Shaw v. Reno applies that principle to districts that are drawn to maximize the votes of minorities and said that when you draw districts that look really funny in an effort to um, create minority that can violate a principle of equality that uh, requires districts to be shaped in a relatively uh, regular looking way. All right, we got one last uh, section, section six. What's the big idea for Marbury? Uh, well, it's our last uh, case. What do we want to leave uh, students with, with Marbury versus Madison? Stephanie, you want to jump in on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the whole notion of, uh, of, the, the role of the the role of the Supreme Court. And Marbury says the role of the Supreme Court is and to the strike down. Branch. Yes, the, the, and the judicial branch, that's a crucial uh, emendation because, as you suggest, Stephanie, the court is the head of the judicial branch, but all the federal courts are important in enforcing the Constitution. And Marbury establishes the principle of judicial review. It says when the court uh, is faced with a law that violates the Constitution, it can strike it down because, as Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist 78, faced with a conflict between the will of the people represented by the Constitution and the will of the legislature represented in an ordinary law, we prefer the will of the principal to the agent, the master to the servant. So it's a huge idea that the Constitution stands for we the people, judges can enforce it, and any time Congress or the states pass laws that clash with the Constitution, the Supreme Court has the power to strike those laws down. Awesome. That was the speed round. I am very proud of you both for being able to do this. I'm even more proud of our students online that have stuck with us during this and are going through these in laser time. And so I just want to thank Stephanie for being with us during this. Jeff, thank you for doing the constitutional lawyer lightning round on all of these things. Um, and I think this has been a really great experience and fun for all ages. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and me, Jackie McDermott, and produced by me along with Scott Bomboy, Curry Sautner, and Tanaya Tauber. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please tune in to our constitutional classes this fall. Our open source sessions are aimed at high school or college students, but are open to the public so that people of all ages can learn more about the Constitution. Learn more or tune in on August 31st by visiting constitutioncenter.org learn or our YouTube channel. 
On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McGurk.